Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to take our next step in this series about being devoted to the things that the uh, first century church was devoted to. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47, these are the words of God. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. In our series, we've been looking at Acts 2, verses 40 through 47, and in particular, zeroing in on that uh, verse 42 from the perspective, or through the lens, if you will, that Luke has provided us not only with a description of Christian life, but that he has also given us a prescription for how we ought to live. Not just a description of what happened some 2,000 years ago, but also a prescription for how we ought to live and conduct our lives as Christians. Although this is not exhaustive, and I've shared this uh, over the past three weeks, Barney uh, did last week, but uh, I've shared that this is not an exhaustive idea. This prescription contains at least four principles that make for a biblically effective church. And the effectiveness of these four principles in action is seen immediately. We see it in verses 46 and 47 in how the church was growing. It's worth noting, though, listen, listen clearly on this, it's worth noting that this prescription or this, uh, this lens through which we're looking at Acts 2, 40 through 47 is not our own lens, Okay? This is not something that we have, we've come up with and we've arbitrarily picked an idea that we think should be prescriptive. Instead, it's one that has been passed down throughout the ages of church history. This is a commonly understood faith and practice of the church. We have recorded in the scriptures, obviously, and this is really important, I think, for all Christians. We have to start at the text. We can't start with our opinions. We sure shouldn't start with our heart. It doesn't really get us anywhere, okay? I mean, the scripture itself tells us the truth about our hearts. So we need to begin with the text, right? And so we see it in the text. But then we hear a testimony of this kind of way of living, this kind of faith and practice, in an early church document that I've referenced before called the Didache. 
But it goes well beyond uh, the dictates or the teachings of the apostles. We see it in St. Cyprian of Carthage in the 3rd century. We see it in John Chrysostom in the 4th century. Eusebius, Athanasius of Alexandria. And as I've quoted several times throughout this series, uh, a, a Lutheran pietist by the name of J.A. Bingle all the way in the 18th century who said, here you go, church, here's your form. You should follow these practices. The modern phrasing of this principle or of this idea is something that we actually know very well. Maybe we didn't know that we knew it, but you've heard the phrase, no doubt, when you've uh, studied churches or you've looked at a church, whether or not this is the the church that you want to land in, you've looked at their faith and practice. That's that's the statement that we often look for. We want to know what their faith and their practice is. That term or that phrase was derived from Acts 2.42 and well documented from times in the past. So as we're reading verse 42, these principles are far more than some description of a bygone era and how they did church, but we just get to wing it today. It's a very different thing. Now, there's something else that I want you to take note of as we springboard off of last week's message regarding fellowship. And that is this, that this verse, verse 42, contains two key elements of genuine Christian fellowship. Two key elements of what we would say is the definition of Christian fellowship. Verse 42 is structured in a very unique way. And I want to walk you through this so that you can see what Luke is telling us when he describes the first century church. So check this out. Verse 42, it says, they were continually devoting themselves to. That right there, if you were creating a propositional outline for a a passage of Scripture, a section of Scripture, or a verse of Scripture, that would be the status of the church. Okay, The status of the church. They were continually devoting themselves to. We would say something like this in our day today. We would say, he was a devoted husband or she was a devoted mom. What we've said is that's her status or his status. They're devoted. What they're devoted to is another matter, their family or whatever. And even still, even further in that, how they are devoted is a different thing altogether. So we have to look at those details. Oftentimes, we look at things like this, and we just kind of assume what that means. But the Bible will explain it to us if we'll keep reading. This is really important. So the status of the church was that they were continually devoting themselves to what, we ask? To the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Now, this is where we need to make sure we follow punctuation or where we trust interpreters of the Bible. Because the interpreters of the Bible, although this punctuation doesn't exist in the Greek, uh, these interpreters are trying their level best to understand the thoughts and the ideas that are presented inside of the text. And so, here we have a comma, and what follows is not an and, which means this whole series of things is not just a series of list items, okay? It's not just here, 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 and here is what the church was devoted to. There's something bigger going on. What they were devoted to is two list items, apostles' teaching and to fellowship. So now what we have is we have a status, the continual devotion. We have two what, the list items of devotion, apostles' teaching and fellowship. And now what we have is a characterization of fellowship in particular. So it's still what I shared in the beginning of this series. There are four principles that we're looking towards, but you need to understand how they flow inside of the text. So here's what he goes on to say. The apostles' teaching and to fellowship, comma, not and 
to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. But instead, these two uh, list items here, the breaking of bread and the prayers, stand in opposition to fellowship. In other words, when you say fellowship, you can read this to say fellowship equals these two things. Fellowship equals these two ideas. So we've got breaking of bread, and then we have the idea of the prayers. Now, next week, we're going to talk deeply. Uh, not next week, actually two weeks. I have, uh, I have called an audible, and I will extend the series for one extra week. Yes, it's awesome. Because, because today's message turned into a sermon series in and of itself. So anyway, it's either, it's either we extend it a week, or you guys hang out with me for about three hours today. Yeah, you guys are good with extending in a week. I knew it. So anyway, yeah, amen, Nathan, go ahead. It's all good. Today, we're going to talk about breaking bread. And specifically in breaking bread, we're going to determine what in the world does this term mean? What does this idea uh, encompass in breaking bread? And then lastly, we're going to see how this uh, has anything to do with fellowship, because I think we struggle with that at times. Last week, Barney used a word uh, to describe fellowship, and that word was nebulous. Can you say that word with me? Nebulous. It's such a fantastic word. Sounds like something from Star Trek. But anyway, so he talked about nebulous being the description of fellowship. And the reason for this is because the Greek word koinonia, the Greek word koinonia, uh, it means, quite simply, it means a participation in something. But that leaves fellowship pretty much open to anything you want it to be, doesn't it? So what do you want a fellowship in? Ah, it doesn't matter. That's why Barney listed that there are things like uh, educational fellowships. There are things like professional fellowships. And whether Barney likes it or not, there is the fellowship of the rings. And it's important. Okay? It is important. And I don't care what he says about it. So I just wanted to put that there for you. Can I get an amen, Ben Bird? Yes, thank you very much. And by the way, he's bigger than you, so you should side with us. Okay. So here's, here's the deal, though. Here's the deal. When fellowship is left with anything, much of what we call Christian fellowship in the church today, it's probably a fellowship in something. But it's not a fellowship in what God would want. It's not a fellowship in Christ. It's not a fellowship in Christ's kingdom. It's not a fellowship in his works, his principles. And as we're going to see today, it's often not a fellowship in what his word expressly states. I was having a conversation a couple weeks ago with, uh, with one of the people who comes to our church. His name is David Shelton. And David is a, David is a fitness instructor. He's also uh, a bodybuilder. He's awesome. Right, He's a very disciplined individual, which is an amazing thing. So David was sharing, we were talking about, um, we were talking about the, the results that you want to get in physical fitness. We were talking about that, and, and mainly because he needs my coaching, right? So uh, anyway, <laughs> opposite. Okay, so anyway, but we're, we're talking about this need for, this, this need for certain things. And, and he shared with me, he says, you know that there are two basic things for physical fitness. Two basic things, he says, and one is... Uh, largely more important than the other. He said, number one is diet. That's the most important thing. And number two is getting exercise. But what culture do we live in today? We live in the 10-minute abs culture, don't we? Okay? We've got a DVD that tells us that we're going to have washboard abs if we do some stupid, I mean, it makes us look stupid if you're doing this on the floor in the middle of your living room in the morning, right? And so you're doing all these things, and it never seems to happen, right? 
I, I can't get this thing to go away, okay? So what does it come down to? It comes down to food, and it comes down to exercise. And the reason I even bring that up is because the same thing is true when it comes to biblical results. God has told us that fellowship has a result. The problem is we want the result, but we don't want to do it God's way. Okay? The result is that we're formed in unity. We're formed and we're encouraged with one another. It, it means that we're living life together and we're willing to lay down our life for one another. It means that when we misstep or when we fall into sin or we fall into a ditch, we have a brother or sister to pick us up. But here's what we do. We go, you know, I want all that. I want all that. But I don't want to do fellowship God's way. I just want to go to the movies with Christians. I just, want, I just want to sit down around my house and, and laugh about stuff. I don't want to do it God's way, but I want God's results. Isn't that sad? But that's exactly what we do with most of our life. We do it with physical fitness, and we do it with fellowship in the church. That's why it is so important that we define fellowship as per God's word. Now, this doesn't mean that other forms of fellowship or partnering in a thing are necessarily sinful. So I have Seinfeld's uh, words in my head, right? Not that there's anything wrong with that, okay? So you can do whatever. You can hang out and have movies and, and pop popcorn and enjoy those kinds of things. I simply mean to say that all too often what the church calls fellowship is nothing more than people hanging out and having fun together. And those things are great. Those things are great. But we're not going to mature in that fellowship. We're not going to grow in that fellowship. So why is this important? Or, or Nathan, aren't you just nitpicking all of this? Well, I wouldn't stand up here and talk to you if I thought I was just nitpicking something. I think it's very important. You see, if the generic outplay of fellowship is all that the Bible is talking about, then the world probably does fellowship better than we do. Right? Some of the best times of fellowship I've ever had, the most freeing, the most restful, have actually been with a mixed multitude, if you will, believers and non-believers alike. But see, that doesn't accomplish God's goals either. His goal is not just so that you can rest from a hard day's work. It's not the goal. The goal is far more than that. It's far bigger than these kinds of things. Koinonia, if not biblically defined, can and will remain nebulous. Or we can define it God's way. And then we can reap his benefits. And that's what I encourage you guys to uh, travel this journey with me and figure this out. Last week, Barney dealt boldly and yet graciously, which I appreciate, uh, in the aspect or key aspect of fellowship which focuses on holiness. How many of you know that our fellowship is with light and not with darkness? Yeah. How many of you really like that at times? <laughs> Some of you. Most of you are like, yeah, sometimes, it's, sometimes I'm thinking, can I just hang out with my old buddies? Can I just go do those things? Sure, sure, but be on mission to them. Don't get into that world again, right? Again, Mar uh, Barney told us very clearly that we are, we are on mission to the world, but we're not of the world. We're not in it with them. We're not, we're not looking just like them. So, just like holiness, I want to look at this idea of fellowship uh, through the lens of breaking bread and do that God's way. I think the best way that we can start with this, of course, is defining the terms. I'm going to saddle up here and get really dorky. 
So if you're a note taker, please, I encourage you to write some of these ideas down. Most of us, uh, if we were asked the question, what does it mean by fellowship, or what do we mean by breaking bread, sorry, what do we mean by breaking bread, most of us would conclude one of two things. We would either say it's communion, right, communion, breaking bread, the Lord's Supper, that's where we even get the name, breaking bread, okay, the Lord's Supper, or we would conclude sharing a meal together. And specifically, if you're just a Christian that likes to use Christianese phrases, right? Like, what are you doing this week? Breaking some bread with some people? You know nobody else knows what the world you're talking about? Everybody's like, huh? What is that all about, right? So, so we've got one of two things. We either have communion or we have sharing a meal with one another. And here's, here's the truth of the definition. Both are right. Both are right. There's dinner with people, and then there are the communion elements. There is the body uh, represented through the, uh, through the bread and the blood represented through the wine or through the juice. But here's the catch. Here's the catch. Biblically, it doesn't seem we can have one without the other. Biblically, it doesn't seem we can have one without the other. In other words, breaking of bread is no more than a shared meal that includes the communion elements, but it is also no less than both. It is also no less than both. Now, I know what that does to people. Uh, that makes people go, hold on a second. Are you telling us that for uh, a thousand years of church history, or 1,500 years of church history, that we have been getting this wrong when we just go up at the end of a service and we dip a piece of bread into a, into a cup or, or we do whatever our tradition kind of raised us to do. Are you saying that that's wrong because we don't have a meal? What I am saying is that I want to discover what the Scripture says. What I am saying is that this journey is to figure out what it is we actually see according to the text and why it is displayed this particular way all the time. I'm actually in no place to give you a doctrinal statement for our church or to give you a practice statement for our church. I want to. I want to deliver that to you, but I want to spend time in prayer over this. I want to spend time sitting with the elders and sitting with our leadership team and really weighing heavily what the scriptures say because it is important that we do it God's way. Amen? It's important that we do it God's way. If we want spiritual abs, we got to do it God's way. I know it's a corny illustration, but if we want that, we got to do it God's way. If we want the benefits of genuine fellowship, it's important that we get this right and we do it God's way. So I want to I walk this journey with you and I want to figure out how, in fact, we can put this into practice uh, and really arrive at genuine Christian fellowship. There are four places in the scripture which, uh, in which we read an account of the Lord's Supper, which yet again is another synonym, and I'm going to have you turn there. Uh, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, as well as John 13. But you can turn to Matthew 26 first. It'll be on the screen, and you'll see what I'm, what I'm getting at. But uh, as we look at these four places that we look to the Lord's Supper, remember this, that the Lord's Supper was a title given to what happened in these accounts about 200 years later in Christian history. It, it was not titled that way. Uh, neither was it titled Communion. Because you have to understand what was happening. There was a, there was a meal that was going on here. There was, a, there was a Jewish festival that was happening here. And they knew it, right? 
this, this festival was Passover, and that was what was centering around all of this, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through three of these accounts, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22, and I'm going to show you some of the parallels, some of the shared features in this so that you can see the meal and you can see the communion elements. The reason I'm not going to go to John 13 is because John 13 doesn't go into detail. John 13 doesn't go into detail. There's this foot washing thing that happens, and then there's the supper, but we don't see all the details that we want to see. So these three deal with it, and you'll see the common threads in them. Matthew 26, starting at verse 26 and going to 28. While they were eating, while they were eating, this is dinner here, right? While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And the next thing that you need to see about all these verses as is, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it. Why do I stress that? Because it doesn't say he took the bread, broke it, he took the cup and blessed it, and they did communion. Simply not what happened. It says, and when he took the cup, which comes later in this meal at some point, okay? And trust me, this is not much ado about nothing. He gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my body, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address this many piece just in a second because I think it's a powerful thing. Mark chapter 14, verse 22 through 24, we see the same parallels. So you can flip forward. Mark 14, verses 22 through 24. Starting at verse 22, here's what it says. While they were eating, there we are again, he took some bread and after a blessing he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup, and when he had taken a cup, not and then he took the cup, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, we're going to see the same language in Mark again, which is poured out for many. John 13, 10 through 11, we see a similar thing, not all, and here's why the not all is present there. This is an amazing thing. We conclude a lot of weird things out of small little chunks of scripture. Right? What do we see in John 3.16? For God so loved the world. What do we see elsewhere in Scripture that God wants that none should perish, but that all come to everlasting life? And all of a sudden we have this really strange thing that says, uh, His blood was poured out for many. You're going, what's the deal with the many? I mean, I thought this was all. Yeah, what's amazing here is who took the communion elements at this time? Who is among the twelve? Judas. Judas was among the twelve. It specifically stresses that he passed the cup to all to drink, but that the blood covered the many. It did not cover them all. It did not cover them all. Judas was not a part of this. Judas goes on. This is why the scripture goes elsewhere and says, Bless, it would have been better for him not to have been born. <gasps> How would you like that to be said of you? Ain't nobody signing up for that one, right? Phil's looking at me like I've heard see people say that about me. You know? <laughs> no, it's just, it's staggering, right? So, so you can see what happens. You got to read these things in their context and ask those tough questions because you'll start to see the meaning for it. Let's turn to Luke 22. Luke 22, 17 through 20. Look at what it says here. And when they had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, 
take this and share it among yourselves. This is verse 17, now moving into 18. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine now, from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Wait a second. He didn't say anything about his blood being shed for us. Yes, because that cup means something different, and I'll show it to you in a second. Verse 19. And I'm running out of breath, apparently. Verse 19, and when he had taken some bread, so when he took the bread, this is implying something else is taking place, and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Look at this line here. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, after they had eaten this Passover meal, this dinner, this supper that they were in, after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So in each count, what we we need to take away is each account includes a meal, and I will give you that it was the Passover meal. But I'll show you how it's more than that as the scriptures go on, right? So the Passover meal was happening. There's a meal present, and there is what we call the communion elements. The bread broken and the cup of wine that was given to represent his blood for us. The particular meal that they were participating in, again, is Passover. And Passover is one of three Jewish pilgrimage festivals. For Christians, we see parallels in Israel's exodus from Egypt in this. The, the, the wrath of God passed over them, right? And they came out of their captivity. And we, for Christians, we see our exodus from sin. Isn't that amazing? Right? So we're walking out of this place of sin inside of our life. There are a few more exciting components to this, but watch, watch what happens. First is the blessing of the cup. This is pronounced in the Hebrew, kadash. Can you say that with me? Kadash. No. <laughs> I always get that from people. No. Okay, so the blessing of the cup. There are four cups that are blessed in a traditional Jewish Seder. There are four cups that are blessed in a traditional Passover meal. This explains what Jesus is doing in Luke 22 in verse 17 when he passed the cup around and said, I won't drink from this vine until the kingdom. Why? It's the first cup in the Passover meal. He's not doing anything obscure here. He's actually doing something falling right in line with Jewish tradition. So there's four cups, and this explains Luke 22. That's verse 17 and 18. The second component of the Jewish Seder is what we call breaking bread. Ah, we've done this before, haven't we, in in history? This is pronounced yachatz. you got to say it with the phlegm too, right? Yachatz. Come on, everybody. One, two, three. That was awesome. I mean, your neighbor's mad because you spit on him, but it's okay. Yakats, okay? So Kadash, guess what Kadash literally translates to mean? That word in Hebrew means sanctification. Oh, the wine is for sanctification. It's like I've heard that before. It's like the blood of Jesus is my sanctification. It's like the thing that washes me. Yes, this was the Jewish understanding at Passover with the blood of the lamb put over the doorposts, right? It was to bring you out. Kadash literally translates sanctification or a blessing over the wine. The yachatz or the bread symbolized freedom. It is also known in Jewish life as poor man's bread. And when we hear that and when we hear their exodus, we understand that it is both the Beatitudes as a symbol, blessed are the poor in spirit, we are poor men, poor women who eat the bread of life, 
that he gives to us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then we also hear the words of Jesus when he's, uh, when he's talking to the devil. Man cannot live on bread alone. But what does he live on? He lives on the word of God, which happens to be what? The bread of life. John 6 tells us what that is. You see, these two acts, the blessing of the cup and the breaking of bread, are also a weekly occurrence during Jewish Shabbat, or Sabbath meal. Every Every Friday night, the father of a household, in a, Jewish, in a Jewish household, a father would come in and he would break bread and he would bless a cup. See, now I think, if you understand the Jewish line here, you can hear the subversive nature of what Jesus is doing with this moment. It's the Passover meal and Jesus is saying, ah, the vine, the fruit of the vine, that's my blood which saves you. Oh, the bread, it represents my body, broken for you. And week after week, Jewish men and their families celebrating Sabbath are experiencing this over and over and over again. It's the bread that gives life and the, and the blood of sanctification. These blessings are amazing uh, as I've studied this. The blessings are cool. The father would stand up and he would break the bread and he would pray this. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has brought forth bread from the earth. And then he would hold up the cup and he would bless the cup and he would say, Blessed are you, God, ruler of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. And this is fascinating. In the Didache, when you read what they did with communion, they attached two prayers that sound very similar to these two prayers, to the bread and to the wine. All of these are the forerunners of what we do. And no doubt, when Jesus is using these symbols, it is to reveal himself, it's to reveal his death on the cross, and what it accomplishes, and it's giving pause to everybody who's listening. They're sitting there going, wait a second. He just told us the bread is him. He just told us that the wine is his blood. There's something staggering going on here. Okay, that's all great history, Nathan. Wonderful. What in the world does this have to do with fellowship? Well, just like we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, and 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 33, we see the meal present day after day. And as often as they did it, they were to do this, breaking bread, in remembrance of Jesus. In Acts 2.46, it says, Breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. And then it goes on to talk about how this was happening day after day, right? Every day these things were happening. Passover was long gone. Passover's gone, and yet there's a meal. And at that meal, there's these two elements, the bread, broken that represents the body of Jesus, and the blood shed, which represents the blood of Jesus. And then we fast forward into Paul's uh, talk in 1 Corinthians 11, where he's dealing with a Gentile context, who is not necessarily celebrating Passover at all. And what do we see in this great issue in 1 Corinthians 11? We see a problem at the meal. We have a problem at the meal, and there's all kinds of disorder that's going on inside of this time. So uh, when I said I'm going to extend the series to next week, what we're going to look at in depth is 1 Corinthians 11, 17-33. We're going to look at what the problem was there. We're going to look at what we're supposed to do as a result because it was there, it's written there in the text so that we wouldn't fall short of what God's desire was for all of us. 
So this was not only the rightful expression of genuine fellowship, it was a sign of covenantal bonding. It's a sign of covenantal bonding. The act of coming to a table together is symbolic of unity and solidarity. How many of you know that? When you come to the table, what you're hoping for, this is why we're so uh, on edge when it comes to Christmas or Thanksgiving, because we're afraid unity and solidarity are not going to be had. Amen? Come on. You guys, you wake up this morning. We're afraid of what is about to happen because there's something built into us, something that tradition, something that human history has invested in us that we look back and we say, the table should be a place of peace. The table should be a place where we have joy. I believe that the psalmist understood this unity very well. It's no doubt why he wrote in Psalm 23 that you, God, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. How does that prove anything, Nathan? Because you don't sit at the table with your enemies, unless God does it. Unless God prepares a table. And listen, church, this is the beauty of what we have inside of this mixed multitude of diverse backgrounds of Christ followers. We have people sitting at the table with each other that would otherwise never sit at the table with each other. Amen? It's blue collar, it's white collar, it's race, it's ethnicity, it's all of these different pieces that are coming together. And yet we sit at the table in solidarity through one really beautiful thing, the bonding blood of Jesus Christ. That's a powerful idea. It's a powerful idea. So if God intervenes, he actually wants to set the table for you and your enemies. Do you want to know how God intervenes in the Christian's life? Pray for your enemies. He doesn't say, I'm just going to miraculously turn your enemies into friends. I've been praying that for a long time. It just never happens, right? It never happens. How does he say to do it? You pray for them. You love them. You reach out that hand of fellowship. You welcome them into this amazing uh, setting at the table. And God will take care of the rest. We plant. We water. Sure. Who causes the increase, church? God does. It's an amazing, amazing thing. For the Jew, each week, Sabbath, each week, Shabbat, each year, Passover, was more than just sitting down at a meal. But it was clearly no less. It was clearly no less than that. For the Christian, our devotion to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship includes breaking bread. And breaking bread includes sitting down for dinner with your fellow believers. And that table can be open to anyone. But it also includes the elements of communion. It includes the bread that represents his body broken for you. It includes the wine, the juice that represents his blood shed for you. Now there are many in the church today that would say, well, I have a problem though. Because the way I was brought up, my tradition says that only the pastor, only the pastor can, can give the communion elements, right? Because why? Because the scripture does say about taking these elements in an unworthy manner and how that could create a problem. Does it not say that? Of course, 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to talk about that next week. So it talks about this. Here, here's the problem, though. Here's the problem, though. Jesus handed communion to Judas. And nowhere in scripture do we see an express statement that says it's the pope's job. <laughs> Sorry. To do it. I'm no pope. Neither is the Pope, for that matter, but I'm no Pope, right? And so we're not, we're not delivering something as if we have approval. The warning in Scripture from Paul is, don't you take it in an unworthy manner. Who's the warning to? You. 
you shouldn't approach the table unless you're willing to say, God, I'm clean before you. I'm, I'm right before you. I'm following you and not my own stupidity. Amen? So there's this picture that I'm having in my head where you see a group of Christians sitting around their dinner table and the father of a house standing up and saying, we're all believers, yes? Yes, we're all believers. Well, guess what? This is fellowship, but I want to also share in this the reality of why we come together. Some of us are so far removed from, uh, from sign, from traditional um, uh, uh, expressions of our faith. We look at that as some sort of works-based anything. But we came as the outflow of a Jewish faith, right? Jesus was a Jew. He was the Messiah who came to save his people. And we happened to be welcomed into the mix because he loved the world. That's an amazing truth. So when we come together, we ought to look at what these people did. And here's what we see. Passover, they sat down for a meal, they broke bread and wine. Acts 2.42, day to day they did this. And as often as they did it, the word of God says, do this in remembrance of me. And then after that, in the, Jewish, or in the Gentile context of Corinth, they kept doing it again and again. Why is it that we've abandoned these kinds of things? Because it's really easy to just come up on a Sunday morning and just go, okay, I've done this, okay, what? You know what the problem is? We don't do it God's way, and we don't get his results. The church is divided. The church is constantly divided. Why is it that when you go over to a, another Christian's house and you sit down at the table with them, there's some joy in you that says, this is supposed to be what Christian life is all about? Yeah, because we abandoned it in the church. <laughs> and we said, just do it at your house. Do it at your house. Listen, church, this goes far further than potluck, okay? <laughs> right? It's not every uh, fifth week we've got, you know, time for fellowship. It should go well beyond that. Well beyond that. Now, I know that this message for some who look at this through a traditional lens goes, That's a re this is really testing it for me, Nathan. I'm not sure about all of that. But I shared at the beginning, I'm not ready to make a, a definitive statement. I just want you to see that the scripture bears testimony to this idea that communion, that breaking bread, which is an expression of right biblical fellowship, has a meal and the communion elements, and it is no less than those two things. It's no less than those two things. I want to encourage you guys that as we walk further in this year and we start to learn what it means to truly engage in biblical fellowship, I want you to search the scriptures. I want you to test what the word of God says. I want you to come back to me. I want you to come to Barney. I want you to come to Mark. And I want you to challenge these ideas. I'm game. I'm 100% game. The reason why is because I don't want to do what is wrong, but I sure want to do what is right. I sure want us to be a people of genuine biblical fellowship. So, you guys want spiritual abs? <laughs> Let's do it God's way, amen? Right? You guys want Christian fellowship? Let's devour the scripture until we find out, what does this look like? Because I want to see that. I want to experience that. I know that God has better for his people. I know that he's got more for each and every one of us. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.